a series a few weeks ago entitled The Gospel Gone Viral, and it's really a study in, in the book of Acts, and the intended purpose of it is to go along with our missions uh, celebration, sort of set the tone. The book of Acts, obviously, is where we learn about the mission of God. We see the mission of God unfolding, and we learn a lot of things from the book of Acts about how the gospel went viral. And we're looking specifically at chapter 1 and the first 11 verses of Acts chapter 1. And we're learning the things that the early Christians did that resulted in the gospel going viral. I don't know if it's true for you or not. Some of it may just simply be my age and seeing things that I have seen watching things occur that are occurring in our presence. But when I look at the world around me, I'm troubled. I'm, I'm bothered by the things that I see. I know when I was young and I would hear people talking about those kind of things, I just didn't pay much attention to it because when you're young, you know, you aren't paying as much attention to some of those aspects of life uh, that are happening and things that are going on. But as you get older and you sort of begin to slow down and life takes on a more serious tone to it and a more mature uh, tone to it, you begin to look at the world around you and you recognize that the world that we live in is in a bad place. The world we live in is in a dangerous place. The world we live in is, is a world that desperately needs a revival. And if we don't see a sweeping revival, I don't know that the world's going to be the same place that we had as kids growing up, as young people growing up. There are things that are happening that are so shocking and so disturbing where common sense is completely set aside, where rationale, well, there is no rationale, where logic completely is put outside the door where things that you could never have even imagined are now accepted. And things that are happening in our schools and with our young people and with college students and with young adults, and you're seeing these things unfold, you're watching as they're deconstructing their faith. And sometimes deconstructing is not a bad thing. Sometimes deconstructing means they're coming down to the basics of what they really believe and what they really need to believe. But when I talk about deconstructing, I'm talking about people who are becoming apostates. They're completely walking away from Christ and walking away from the Scripture and walking away from the Bible. And churches that have decided to amend their programs and to accommodate the culture in which we live. We should always be loving. We should always be kind. We should always be considerate, but we can never compromise. Right. Truth is truth, right. and truth cannot be compromised and us be pleasing to God, and yet we watch it. We see it. I was sitting with a couple this past week uh, who has a son that's going to Marshall University, and they were telling uh, me about a couple of the assignments that he had received from one of the classes 
And then he began describing the husband who was there with his wife, me and Mary, and his wife together. He began describing the articles that the young person had to read and then had to develop an argument about that if I were able in a room, and I would not do so, but if I were able in a room, I still would not even tell you what the titles of the two articles were. And I don't know about you, but I see that happening everywhere. But we have low-commitment church. Let's dumb it down to the lowest common denominator. Let's make church as little as we can make it. Let's make it as close to a social organization as we can make it. And the result is, is that we not only have abandoned the Lord ourselves, but we have lost the light that God has given to his church. And God will never, ever compromise his truth or allow us to compromise his truth and bless us in the process. Because it's, more, it's less about a crowd and it's more about disciples. It's less about how many people do you have coming and it's more about how many people do you have following Jesus. It's, it's less about how much you know and it's more about how much you apply that you know. And, and we're living in, in a world that troubles me. Second uh, Timothy tells us that there's going to be a falling away before the coming of Jesus Christ. And I, I am of the opinion that we may well be living in the midst of that falling away right now. Amen. That it's greater than it's ever been before, more significant than it's ever been before. And apart from God sweeping across our nation and across this world with a revival, that we are in serious and significant trouble for the future. And the eternal destiny of men and women and young people, I'm talking about young adults, not just teenagers, young adults, married couples, singles, the eternal destiny is hanging in the balance. And churches have got to begin desiring for God to do a work in their midst that can only be described as the work of the Holy Spirit and the work of the Almighty God. There have been through the ages, if you've read much about church history, a number of revivals. There's one good book written by Elmer Towns about ten great revivals of the past. But there have been a number of great revivals, more than just those ten. In the 1730s to the 1740s, there was what was called the first great awakening. And God swept across this country and, and, and across this world, and people were turning to Christ, and lives were being changed, and the churches were burgeoning with people, and uh, there was an interest and a passion about God and about the worship of God. In the 1800s, they had the second great awakening. And again, there was the movement of God in, in that century in a most unusual way that could not have been explained as just being the machinations of some brilliant uh, individual who put together programs and plans and drew people in with their entertainment. 
It was the work of God that was accomplished. In 1904 to 1905, there was the, the Welsh Revival. If you go to Europe today, you find what a secular nation looks like. You find what a godless nation looks like. You find the people that do not know anything. To, and I say people. Most of the people do not know anything about Christianity or about Christ or about the truths of Christ or about the claims of Christ. They think nothing of the things that they're doing. They have no conscience about them whatsoever. But in 1904 and 1905, there was a revival, the Welsh revival that swept, swept across that part of the world and lives were being changed and lives were being transformed. In the 1930s to the 1960s, there was this incredible revival that took place in East Africa. They call it the East African Revival. And I might tell you today that you might not know this, but you should know this, that the center of missions today is no longer America, that America has become the mission field, and the center of missions today is Africa. African Christians in African churches who see the need of the world in the greatest number of missionaries and missionary support coming from African Christians. And in the 30s and the 60s, there was a great African revival. Or some of you are old enough as I am to remember the Jesus movement of the 60s and the 70s. I didn't like a lot of things about it. But there were a lot of people that were swept into the family of God as a result of it. There is a movie out that's one that Mary and I have been to see called The Jesus Revolution. And you find that these young hippies being baptized out in the Pacific Ocean who had come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, come into a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and a revival amongst young people who were turning to Jesus and who desperately needed the answers that Jesus could provide and the hope that Jesus could provide. So there have been revivals that you can look at through the course of the centuries. There have been revivals that have occurred again and again. And I believe that if America, some of our families, most of our churches don't see a revival, that we're going to lose the hope we're going to lose the prospect. We're going to lose the privileges that we have enjoyed in America. They're being taken away from us a little bit at a time. The things that we're dealing with today, though, aren't really worse than they were in many respects in the first century, in the Roman world. The evils, the wickedness, the ungodliness that we often think of in our world today that seems to be getting worse and worse was prevalent and apparent in the first century world. And in that first century, after the ascension of Jesus back to the Father, 120 people. Get that. we got more than 120 people in here. Somebody says, why don't you shut down Sunday night? Have you looked around to see how many people are in this room? 120 people met day and night, hear the words, day and night in that room. And God sent a revival 
that changed the world. On the day of Pentecost, Peter stands up and he begins to preach. And the Holy Spirit gives him boldness. They speak in the languages of all the people that are gathered there. And 3,000 in one service come to faith in Jesus. 5,000 men a little later. It says they're being added daily to the church until the numbers are growing at such a pace they can't say they're being added anymore. It says the disciples were multiplied. And if Jesus could do it in the first century, and Jesus could do it in the 18th century, in the 19th century, in the 20th century, Jesus can do it again in the 21st century. And we desperately in America need that move of God. It isn't going to happen until people like you and me, the couple of hundred people that are here, 250 that are here tonight, until we decide we want to see God do it. Until we decide that just accepting the acceptable, just going along with what everybody else wants to do, just accommodating the culture because the culture says this is the way it has to be, and we decide that we have a heart for God that we cannot a heart for God that we cannot get away from. We're not going to see it. Do do you know, I'm not even going to get to the message, I don't think. Do you know that it bothers me, the, the apathy that I sometimes find in my own life and the apathy that I see in other believers' lives? The passion is not there. Do you realize that in churches like ours, there are people making decisions that don't pray? They don't read their Bibles. They're not involved in life groups. They barely want to come to church. And they make decisions. How is that true? How is that possible? How is it that we've decided that the things of God are secondary in nature rather than primary in nature? That the gathering of believers is something that you can take or leave rather than something that you ought to take every time it's offered. How is it that we've come to the place where the passion has gone out and we're going through the motions like the Laodicean church, going through the motions of religiosity? And Jesus is outside the door knocking on the door saying, let me come in and fellowship with you. How is that possible? How, how is that possible? And yet we see it all around us. If we're going to have what they had in the first century, we're going to have to do what they did in the first century. Did you hear what I just said? If we're going to have what they had in the first century, we're going to have to do what they did in the first century. You say, well, times were different. You better believe they were different. They were a lot harder than anything any of us has to deal with. They didn't ride in a car at a church with air conditioning and padded pews when they got here. It wasn't easy being a believer. As a matter of fact, being a believer in the first century could cost you your life. Today, we just drift along. Wherever the tide's going, whatever whatever the culture says, we just drift along. If we're going to have what they had, we're going to have to do what they did. If we're going to see that kind of revival, Lewis Memorial Church, if we're going to have a revival, we're going to have to to do what they did. 
Two of those things we've already talked about. First of all, they waited. As a matter of fact, you should circle these words in verse 4. It says, being assembled together. Aren't you glad they assembled together? And you know what they did when they assembled together? They waited. Circle the word wait. But to wait for the promise of the Father. They waited. They waited for the promise. They waited for the power of God. But they weren't just waiting in idleness. They were waiting in prayer. Do you pray for your church? Do you pray for the pews to be filled in your church? Do you pray for the missionaries to reach the lost? Do you pray for more missionaries to become a part of our missions team, a part of the network in which we're involved? Do you pray for God to bring conviction to the lost hearts? Do you pray for your neighbor who doesn't know Jesus? Do you pray for opportunities to share your faith with others? Do you pray? They waited before God in prayer. If you call a prayer meeting in a Baptist church, people stop showing up. If I called a prayer meeting tonight, some of you wouldn't show up. But this church waited for 10 days in that upper room, 120. And they were waiting before God in prayer in church until we get serious again about praying We're not going to see the move of God. At the beginning of 2020, is it 24 next year? Yeah. At the beginning of 2024 next year, we're having a special emphasis of 21 days of prayer. At the beginning of the year, 21 days of prayer. If the church doesn't get back to praying, we're not going to see a change in people's lives. Not only were they waiting, they were witnessing. He circled the word down in verse 8. You'll receive power after the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be, here it is, witnesses. Not only were they waiting, they were witnessing. These people went out, and they began sharing their faith. It could have cost them their lives. It could have cost them their fortune. It could have cost them their homes. It could have cost them their careers. But they thought the eternal souls of men and women and the good news of the gospel itself was more important than those kinds of things, than the material things of this world. We want our kids to succeed. We want a degree hanging on the wall. We want a good income so they can have a nice life. And they grow up without God. They don't have a witness for the name of Jesus Christ. And this early church, they had the move of God in their midst because they waited before God in prayer and they witnessed to others in the power of God. They witnessed to others with boldness, with boldness. Imagine that. Can you imagine walking up to a Jewish neighbor and saying, did you know Jesus is alive? Walking up to somebody that was in your community or in your workplace and saying, did you know that Jesus died for your sins, was buried, and rose again? Did you know that? They witnessed. You say, it's hard to witness. You better believe it's hard. It's hard for me to witness. It's even more so since 2020 than it was for for me prior to 2020. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't witness because it's hard. And they witnessed. Why didn't we have somebody? By the way, we did have somebody saved this morning. We had a lady who came by after second service, shook my hand. She said, I did not raise my hand, but I told the Lord Jesus I was trusting him to save me today. Can I meet with you this week? No, I'm sorry. I don't have time. 
No, I'm sorry to you if it means putting you aside to make time for somebody who just trusted in Jesus Christ because there isn't anything more important. Some of us have been sitting and soaking so long, we are so sour that God's not even sure he wants us in heaven. And I say that jokingly, sarcastically. And here's the lady who just came to faith in Jesus today. But how are you going to fill those pews with people that need to know Jesus if we don't witness, if we don't invite them to church? You say, but I ask people, and they don't want to come. Yeah, but for all the ones that don't want to come, there will be somebody who wants to come. The number one reason people say they will come to a church is because somebody from the church invited me. They're witnessing they talked about the things that they had seen and the things that they had heard and the things that they experienced. And they witnessed, according to Acts 1.8, all the way to the ends of the earth. It's not enough for us to witness in the community where we are. We've got to be involved in taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. That's the work of the church. But thirdly, if you want to know what they did and why God moved amongst them in a way that we desperately need for him to move today, it is that they watched. They not only waited and witnessed, they watched. Look at verse 9. Now, when he had spoken these things while they watched, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up. Behold, two men stood by them in white apparel who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? Now listen, they're watching. This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come. And we're supposed to be watching every single day. I had a man write me recently and he said, I think your interpretation of the revelation is wrong. Well, get in line. Get in line. He sent me a link to somebody who's teaching the revelation as a, a, a matter of stories that were fulfilled before 70 or by 70 A.D. He said, your, your, your uh, approach to the revelation is filled with speculation. I listened to the, I listened to the, to the uh, podcast I'm, I know I'm dumb. <laughs> I listened to the podcast, and I wrote him back. You talk about speculation? Did you hear how much speculation this man had in what he said about the revelation? You understand what I'm saying to you? They want us to do away with watching for Jesus. They want us to think, today the modern philosophy, the modern seminary is turning out students who says, we're not supposed to be watching for Jesus. We're going to usher the kingdom in. Don't live as if Jesus could come at any moment of any day. Listen, if you think that, you're going to be sorely surprised when Jesus appears. And you're going to end up living in a way that doesn't represent the Christianity that Christ intends for us to live. <clears throat> when you're watching, when you're watching for him, you recognize that you want to be ready for him to come. You want your heart to be right with him. You want to be doing the things you, he wants you to do. You want to be living in the way that he wants you to live. And these people, because they were watching, they go back. 
They go back after Jesus ascends and they start doing the work that God gave them to do. They get involved in the work that God called them to do. He could come. He could come. We've got to get to it. We've got to get busy. We've got to make sure that we don't fail. The task is before us. He could come at any moment. And that's what the coming of Jesus is intended to do. But when you stop watching, uh, I don't need to hurry. I don't need to rush. Not only does watching increase your performance, but watching also affects your purity. When you know that Jesus could come at any moment, it causes you to live in a way that recognizes that at any moment Jesus could come. And I don't want to live in a way that if he were to come, that I I would disappoint him or he would be disappointed in what I'm doing. I'm going to tell you a story, and I don't want you to tell anybody else. When I was a young teenager, 14, 15, uh, 14, 15 years of age, I had two older friends, Tommy and Scott. We played golf together. Every week we played golf together. Tommy and Scott were older than I were. They could, they could buy cigarettes. I couldn't do that. But they could buy cigarettes. Scott was old enough to drive, so we drove all over Atlanta playing at different golf courses during the summer and on the weekends, on Saturdays on the weekend. I had to go to church on Sunday. But I, on Saturdays playing golf all over, the, all over the city of Atlanta. Any golf course that was available to the public was a golf course that I've probably played at one time or another, at least that were available at that time. But they could buy cigarettes, and so... We started trying to act like we were big stuff, and we got cigarettes, and we started smoking. I don't think I ever inhaled. (laughs) I think I heard a president say that one time. (laughs) See if it would work here. I'm always convicted when I go to the doctor, and they don't know me very well, and they say, do you smoke? And I keep thinking, now, that's, that's, I was 15, I'm 65, do I need to tell them what I did 50 years ago? We'd have cigarettes, and we, we'd smoke like we were something big. I mean, we're big stuff. How stupid. How utterly stupid. Ride around like we were big stuff. Get on the golf course, hitting golf shots, and flip, flipping your cigarette somewhere like we were big stuff. I knew that the one thing that couldn't happen was my, my mother or my daddy find out. I decided to slip around one day, smoke at my my house. I went out in the garage, a detached garage, and I smoked a cigarette out in the detached garage. I was an idiot. I've long since left the garage, but the smoke smell has not long since left the garage. And my dad comes in, and my dad smells the cigarette smoke, and he finds me, and he said, what have you been doing? And I got it good time. I don't mean I didn't get physically disciplined. I I mean, I I felt like I was this big. And then he did the worst possible thing he could have ever done. He said, if you promise me you'll never pick up another cigarette, I'll not tell your mother. (laughs) And I did not want my mother to know. Not because she was going to spank me, but because I would have broken her heart. 
I would have absolutely broken my mother's heart. When you're watching, you don't do stupid things. If I'd known my daddy was coming home when he came home, I wouldn't have been doing what I was doing. Right? When you're watching for Jesus to come, you recognize that you're going to live your life in a way so that if he appears at this moment, he's not sad at what he finds you doing. And it motivates you not only to purity, but to performance, to get busy and to go at it. And if we're going to reclaim what the early church had, we're going to have to be a people who waits before God in prayer and who witnesses to others with boldness and who watch for, to the heavens with an expectancy. Jesus can come at any moment. And no, I'm not giving up my dispensationalism. And no, I'm not giving up my premillennialism or pre-tribulationism. Jesus is coming, friends. I got news for you. Jesus is coming any moment of any day. In the twinkling of an eye, he will appear and he'll call his church out. And I'm motivated to get busy doing what I've got to do and to live in a way that will please him so that when he finds me, I'll be doing what he wants me to do. But the fourth thing this church was doing, and finally, if we're going to reclaim what they had in the early church and we're going to have revival, they worshiped. I want you to turn with me. Remember what he says here at the beginning of uh, verse 1, what he says back here in verse 1, the former account I made. What is the former account he's talking about? It's the Gospel of Luke. Luke wrote both Acts and the Gospel of Luke. They're two books that really go together. They, they work together. So turn back with me for a moment to Luke chapter 24. And at the end of the very last thing of the book of Luke, when Jesus is ascending up to heaven, I want you to see what this church is doing. They're waiting before God in prayer. <clears throat> they're witnessing to others with boldness. They're worshiping or they're watching with, to the heavens with expectancy. But I want you to see that they're worshiping the Son of God in joy. They're worshiping the Son of God in joy. Notice verse 50. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. Now it came to pass while he blessed them that he was parted from them. Isn't that what you're reading about in Acts 1? Here's a little bit of it at the end of Luke, Luke chapter 24. He departed from them, that he was, that he was parted from, from them and carried up into heaven. And here's our fourth W. And they, what's the word? Worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Amen. They not only waited and witnessed and watched, circle the word worshiped, they worshiped the Son of God Enjoy. Do you worship the Son of God in joy? Sometimes I don't as much as I should. Do you worship the Son of God in joy? I mean, he's got this exalted position in verse 51. There is his eternal presence in verse 49. There is his ensuing plan in verses 46 to 47. But they recognize that they were in the presence of the one who is the Savior, who is the Son of God. And what does it mean to worship? It means to kiss toward. It means to fall on your faces before him and declare him worthy. 
and they worshiped. I fear today that we don't worship. We're entertained. I don't necessarily mean our church, but I'm talking about churches in general. We're entertained, but we don't worship. We don't recognize in whose presence we are coming. We don't recognize that this is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. There's an absence of reverence and respect for the one who is our God. I'll just tell you now, there are some things that I will never do or as pastor of this church never allowed to be done because I don't believe they demonstrate a reverence and a respect for God and demonstrate a worship from our hearts for one who is greater than you and I can even begin to imagine. They are not worthy of the God we call our God. And there has to be latitude for that because every church has some variance in how they see those things. But I just got news for you, friends. There are things that ought not to be going on in our churches because they're not worthy of the God that we serve. We ought to be bowing on our faces before him. You realize when people saw Jesus where you usually find them after or at the moment they find Jesus or see Jesus? Do you know where you normally find them? You find them on their faces before him. You don't find them writing a book saying, look at me, I just got back from heaven. Let me tell you what I saw. You find them on their faces in the presence of the one who is worthy of worship. We have such a devalued God in such an inflated man that we're almost on the same level anymore. I'm almost as good as God. I don't really have to worship him because he's down to my level and I'm up to his. I got news for you, friends. We ought to be like Isaiah, who in the year that King Uzziah died, he saw the Lord high and lifted up. And when he saw the Lord high and lifted up, he said, I am a man of unclean lips. I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And he cried out for God to cleanse him. When we worship God, we won't always go away with, you know, what do you call it? Goosebumps all over your neck and your hair standing up on the back of your neck. Sometimes you go away in humility because you've seen that apart from the saving, the saving grace of Jesus Christ, you would be lost in hell forever. The early New Testament church saw a move of God, and if we're going to see a move of God, we've got to wait before him in prayer. We've got to witness to others with boldness. And we've got to watch the heavens with expectancy, and we've got to worship the Son of God in joy you look at the average Christian's face when he or she comes to church. By, by the way, I don't, I don't want to judge this just by the way your face looks because I can't help the way my face looks. The, 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 the uh, drama instructor when we played Mary and Joseph and taught us how to do acting said, what's wrong with your face? Can't you express yourself through your face? No, I can't. But you can watch Christians. I see it all the time. 
It's not just their faces. Their shoulders are slumped over. They're dragging their feet. The joy is gone. You know what they're joyous about? You know what they're joyous about? They're going to be at the Eras, the Eras tour. Who's that, who's that singer? Taylor Swift. Taylor, they're going to be at Taylor Swift's concert. <laughs> hey, that makes me happy. That makes me joyous. By the way, I'm not criticizing that. There's a place for that. I'm just telling you, that's what makes them happy. What makes me happy is going to a ball game, Cincinnati Reds, to watch them, watch them lose. I mean, win. Watch them win. <laughs> That's what makes me happy. Get a Skyline hot dog piled up with cheese. That's what makes me happy. What made the early church happy was gathering with the people of God and worshiping the God of heaven. And God came down. And God turned the world upside down. And we desperately need for God to come down again and for God to turn our world upside down. 